Hey, you found us. Welcome to Comfortably Uncomfortable, Not Another Running Story. I'm Megan Fanning, and I'm joined by Sean Meehan. We created this podcast to continue the real conversations that we have when we get outside to run, bike, surf, climb, or whatever it is that you do. We love the real conversations when boundaries come down, because really, that's when it gets interesting. This is part two of me talking about the trauma associated with a bicycle crash that I had a few years ago, and this half really covers the subsequent recovery and where I am today. So if you haven't heard the previous podcast, it was dropped two weeks prior, I would suggest starting with that podcast, but hey, you do what you like. Another heads up. Some trigger warnings in here, if you're going through medical trauma, PTSD, emotional trauma, maybe this will be too much, or maybe it will be just the right thing to help you and support you in your healing. Either way, if this says something to you, if you hear something, if this means something to you, please reach out to me and Sean and just let us know. It always helps to get your feedback. Enjoy. I'm like trying to think throughout this entire time, there's very few people that I let in um, because it was just that scary. Like I, I know I let Bill in cause he was the one taking care of me. Um, my kids saw what was going on um, because, you know, there were times where I needed, you know, I'd need help getting, um, you know, my pants over this giant. I mean, in this contraption was at least a foot, you know, at least a foot in diameter. I mean, it was big. This isn't a small thing. Um, and I was just 100% reliant on others to meet my needs, which, which makes me super, super, super uncomfortable. Um, but if I didn't let anybody in, then I couldn't. So, so yeah, so I shut, I shut a lot of the world out. Um, I, you know, I was told one of my friends from college, she's a photographer now. Um, and I remember her telling me when I had the initial accident, she said, take lots of pictures. And that's not something that I, I don't, when a moment is either super special or super hard, I don't take pictures because I like to just be present. But she said, remember to take pictures because you're not going to believe later on where you were. So throughout the entire process, um, especially with the fixator and all the different procedures on this fixator, um, I took lots of pictures. And to this day, um, I can't really look at them. It's, uh, it just looks so barbaric and so painful. And the, the, the lowest point, so this, I think we're getting here, the lowest point in this whole thing, when I got the fixator off my leg, um, I have, so this is after three and a half months or whatever, I have bandages all over my leg. I have to have these surgeries with a specialist um, in New York City. So we drive home. Um, and I remember I was sitting on the bathroom floor and I have to take these bandages off. And I was so scared. I couldn't do it. I mean, and it and it sounds stupid because I'm a paramedic. Like I, I deal with wounds all the time. That doesn't, you know, I don't have any issues with blood and guts. But I was afraid to look at my leg, so I sat on the bathroom floor. And again, we did, we did video this. Um, I, I I haven't watched it, and I don't know that I ever will. Um, of and my my husband came in and took the bandages off my leg and I was shaking like almost like I was shaking after the crash like I was cold you know I'm like I just couldn't stop shaking um and couldn't stop rocking and and as he slowly just took you know just unrolled these bandages and I think the whole probably took over a half hour to get to get the bandage off like that's how slow we had to move and then I looked at my leg and you actually made me laugh you, I don't know if you remember this, but this was a little while. I think it was maybe like a week later. I had sent you a picture of my leg. And I think I kind of needed this. You said, Meg, you said, if you died and your body was like floating in a river for like six months, 
He goes, that's what you, you go. That's what your leg looks like. <laughs> and I, honest to God, that was like the moment that was, I think that was a bit of a release on my cat. Looks like, looks like I've been dead. I mean, my leg was like shriveled all these weird colors. It was horrific. Um, and when I got the fixator off, so this is Jesus five years post-accident, you know, I've all these procedures, all these surgeries, um, I'm still on crutches. Um, I can't walk on it. My leg hasn't been stepped on in over three months. Um, I had severe osteoporosis in my right leg from not stepping on it. So the bone was really brittle and the doctors were afraid that like, even if I bumped into a table or something like that, it would have broken, it would have broken my leg. So I had to be really careful. Um, I couldn't step on my leg. Um, but yeah, that that moment sitting on the bathroom floor, taking the bandages off. And I don't know why. I, I wish I could say like why that was the lowest moment. But it was so scary just to see what my leg was going to look like um, without that, you know, demonic contraption, you know, all over it. So. Yeah, so for a space of time like i think observing right from the time you were making the decision to get the fixator or not um and then the initial removal of the fixator and probably several weeks after um i think from observation point that entire space of time was lower than I saw you when you had your initial crash yeah. and were in the bed. Because mm-hmm. um, at this point, you're, I mean, from my perception, we're physically ex- and mentally and emotionally exhausted from trying to correct something. And then even when you got the fixator off, I don't think you believed that it had helped you. Yeah, it... <sighs> Yeah, because it was because it was so painful. Yeah. And I think that seemed. Like at that point, it's it's, it 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 circles back to to the to the ortho that told me I was never going to walk unassisted again. And I thought, Jesus Christ, maybe that dipshit was right. And and that was the first time I had some acceptance that, oh, my God, maybe I will be in a walker or use a cane, or maybe I still will have to have my leg amputated like this to this day. Um, the fear of another surgery, um, looms over me. Like, I don't think I could go through another surgery. Um, but yeah, I'm like, I went through all this torture and what if it doesn't work? And you, and I'm defining like success it working based on, well, I want to go back to my old self where I can run over a hundred miles a week and, and do this. And, you know, um, so in, in retrospect, it did work not to the extent that I would have liked it to work. Um, the good news is, is that I have no more pain in either of my ankles. It's very rare that my ankles ever hurt. So it did correct, um, it, my, my right ankle also used to get really swollen. Like by the end of the day, um, it would be as big as my calf. Um, you know, I have a cankle. Um, that doesn't happen anymore. My foot, though, the dorsiflexion is improved, but it's kind of stuck. I think that I can probably get to about 90 to 100 degrees, whereas a normal range of motion, think of somebody squatting 120 to 130, right? Um, Am I saying that right? No, I think I actually got the angle opposite. Right, because no, when you're squatting, be, the angle. Yeah, right? but it but it but it'd be considered 120 degrees. So you'd go 90 and then. Yeah, yeah, over. yeah. Over. Yeah. Um. So my ankle is not normal. Um. I do still wonder, like, am I going to be able to keep my leg? Um. I think so. There's no reason. There'd be no reason to amputate my leg today. Um. But. What happens today is because of this limited range of motion in my ankle, and for the most part, 
a regular person wouldn't notice. Although, like, if I'm around one of my close friends or if I'm around somebody that's a massage therapist or some sort of body worker or or a doctor, they may look at my gait and go, Meg, why are you walking so much on your toes on your right side? Right. Those people. And it kind of. um our friend Sarah, when we were camping last weekend, I was walking around barefoot and she's like, I notice you still walk a lot on your toes on your right foot. And it jarred me a little bit that other people can see that because I try to set up my life so my limitations aren't visible. Right. Um, and that's still that's a lot of protection mechanism just because I don't it's very hard to talk about this. It's very hard to talk about trauma to somebody that's never been through it. Um, I think there are certain experiences in life that you you can empathize with, but you aren't truly going to understand until you've gone through it yourself. And I would say like the death of a parent, um, the death of a child. I mean, those are, you know, those are some things that I could empathize with, but I have never gone through them. So I can't pretend to understand what it feels like when you talk about losing your parents. I, I don't know. I have both of my parents here. Um Traumas like that, too. And also in trauma work, there tends to be this idea like, well, mine isn't so bad. Mine isn't so bad because I'm not in a wheelchair or mine's not so bad because I'm not paralyzed or mine's not so bad because I can still go hike. Um, no, it's bad. <laughs> it's bad. Um, it's bad and it's hard and it opens me up to a level of vulnerability that to this day still makes me uncomfortable. This podcast is really uncomfortable, but I think the reason it's important for us to do this is because I think people look at you and me and they're like, oh my God, you guys are like crazy athletes and you're badass. People will call me badass or Wonder Woman and it actually kind of makes me cringe because there's nothing special there's nothing special about my physical abilities. Okay. I like to run. I'm a dink that can run for a long time. Like I just have, that's just what I like to do. Right. But I think what makes us different is the drive we have to push ourselves to places in the, you know, the name of the podcast, comfortably uncomfortable. We have a drive to push ourselves to places that maybe regular people won't go because it's so uncomfortable. So I want to say that over the last, you know, since 2016, when this happened, that's where I've been living. So me pushing myself, so I can't do, I don't think, you know, I don't think I could run a hundred mile race. I, you know, maybe I couldn't do 50. I don't know. Um, I did a marathon this summer, which is pretty cool, but that is, that's about as far as I can go. I'm uncomfortable, but I can't hurt myself again because I cannot, I don't think today, you know, talk to me next year. I don't think I could physically or emotionally endure the trauma of another surgery. Um, the trauma of, you know, that incredible vulnerability, the pain. Um, and also like, it's, I really, want people to know this, like I, I live in chronic pain and for people that have been through trauma, pain may manifest emotionally, physically, both, whatever. But for me, I don't have pain anymore in my ankle. But what happens is if you looked at my back, um, it almost presents like I have scoliosis because the right side of my body, um, my, you know, my hips, my sacrum, my back, ribs, shoulder were all broken. So it, my right hip, my right hip bone almost tilts up a little bit. So what happens when I walk, and this is exacerbated by the fact that I can't really bend my ankle appropriately. If I'm on my feet too much, it hurts my back. Um, if I sit or if I slouch, like if I sit on my sacrum and your sacrum is like not your tailbone, not your low back, kind of that point, like right above your butt sort of, um, if I sit on my sacrum, it gives me a feeling like I'm going to vomit. It's like this dip in the deep, sick, um, nauseating feeling. Um, so yes, I live with this stuff all the time. Um, but <laughs> it, I have, I always have choices. Um, I can be that 
addict that's on the couch that I think the original surgeons wanted to create. They wanted me to live on a couch, use a walker or a wheelchair, and just live on opioids for the rest of my life, right? I could do that. Um, I on, on the 100% flip side, I could push myself. Um, I can go run as many miles as I want, ignore the pain, suck it up. Um, I don't want to do that. I don't want to live in that kind of pain. I also don't want any more procedures or surgeries. So what I choose today, I still, I miss, I miss races. I miss competing. Um, I really can't compete against anybody but myself today. Um, but what I can do today is take care of my body and, and take care of my mind. And I'm in therapy. Um, I want to touch on that for people that are struggling with PTSD. So we have to I'll go back to that. Um, it, I try to make sure that every single day, actually, Sam, Coach Sam, Sam Farnsworth, um, I've adapted his method of training. And what Sam does is he has his ideal workouts that he wants to do in a week. And he wakes up, kind of looks at his schedule, sees how his body feels, and that's what he does. Okay, so today, for example, before our podcast, I had about an hour and a half to do my workout, but my lower back was really killing me. Um, I don't know why. Um, just was really bad. So I did, um, I just did, you know, about an hour or so of, of yoga. Um, I do a lot of yoga now. I probably done more yoga now than I have ever in my entire life. And, but what that does, the Sam Farnsworth method <laughs> of training is every day it brings me back into my body. And I think what trauma, emotional and physical, and I've had both, um, I think trauma, what it does to you is it separates you from your body. And it kind of leaves you outside. It's like outside of what's happening in you because it just hurts so fucking bad. Some days you just don't want to deal with it. I don't want to deal with the fact that 30 seconds of a stupid bike ride changed my entire life. I don't want to. So that would mean me separating. And when you separate or you, or you close parts of yourself off to yourself, to your loved ones, to the rest of the world, um, you can't just close off the bad stuff. That means you also close off joy, close off happiness, close off the ability to help other people. Um, you can't just say, yeah, I'm just going to shut it down and not feel what I want to feel. So we've now, right, we're talking and we're talking about how you are now as an endurance athlete. What is, what is your perception of yourself as an endurance athlete what is mm. and how has that um, changed and how do you i guess feel all about that because there has to be some i mean there's there's definitely yeah you've i mean you've said there's physical changes that have created a different endurance athlete and what's your perception of that and so if, if you and i were running together before the accident right and let's say that, I mean, you and I are both super competitive, right? I think we both have the personality that if we were on a run together, one of us would be a leg in front of the other, right? Not even intentionally, like we would push each other, right? Um, if you and I were running together today, well, actually, you and I were running together back then, I'd be like, sure. Um, let's let's say you were going at a pace I couldn't keep up with. I'd be like, fuck that. I'm just going to keep the pace. Doesn't matter. <laughs> I can I can run through anything. Um, today, if you and I were running together, um, and you were doing something that I can't do, I'd be like, yeah, nope, can't do that today. That's a huge ego check. That took years. <laughs> that took years. That would take, and it's not like you care, not like you'd be like, oh yeah, Meg's a loser because she can't run an eight minute mile. You would never do that, but I do. I do. Like I look at my paces and go, this is sometimes... I'm not, you'll notice, um, my runs are not on my, most of my workouts are not on Strava. I think my bike, my bikes come through. Um, but I had to take my workouts down publicly and not because I was afraid of what other people would look at, but I felt like I needed an explanation. So let's say I went for a run and I ran a pace that I decide was slow. I didn't want you to look at it and go, God, Megan's a loser. 
you you're not doing that. I am. I'm the one saying I'm the loser because I can't run as fast as I want to, but I'm putting it off on you. I'm putting it off on people that are looking. So I took all that down. Um I have had to f- I need movement every single day. Okay. And it's a little bit of a juxtaposition because if I do too much movement or the wrong movement, I can really hurt myself. So with a lot of therapy um, and really getting into my body, I figured out ways that I can move that don't cause damage. So I do my yoga, I run. Um, I can't typically, if, if I'm running above like double digit miles, um, it starts to hurt my back. So I usually run under 10 miles, you know, at a shot. Um, I surf. Um, I ride my bike, I mountain bike, I have my gravel bike. Um, but at any time, any plan that I have, if I notice my body starting to hurt, I have to back off. Whereas in 2015, before all this, when my body hurt, I'm like, bring it on. Who's going to carry the boats? We are. Let's do this. You know, like as a David Goggins imitation, if anybody wondered why I'm yelling about boats. Um, <laughs> like it was this just my success as a human being was based on how hard I could push myself before this accident. My success today as a human being is how I can be most present in my body and be open to all of the all of the experiences that I'm having, good and bad. So if I'm in a bad place and you ask me, how are you doing? I'm going to probably tell you the truth. Okay. Um, whereas before I, don't, I wouldn't have even known what the truth was myself. Um, the other thing I really want to mention is um, all the therapy and all the work I've done around this. And I am a therapist. I hate therapy. I don't like being in therapy. I like providing therapy for other people, <laughs> but therapy is no fun for anybody that's ever been through it. And when you, and I had severe PTSD, um, and it, the PTSD that I experienced first started coming up when I got back out on the trails, I noticed that, um, how do my body, as soon as I would run down a hill or as soon as I would be in a technical place, my body would get really tight because it was anticipating me falling. Okay. Um, and when you're running or biking or whatever you're doing and you think you're going to fall and you tense up, that's exactly what's going to happen. You're going to fall. Um, so I went through, um, and did the first type of therapy that I did was TAT. And, um, if you want to, you know, please look that up. Um, it's a form of, um, acupressure, um, that helps, realign the neural pathways that um that have formed during the trauma and let me just back up a little bit um i also have used emdr if anybody knows what that is um but what these therapies do when a trauma happens your brain has a certain level of neuroplasticity meaning your brain can be molded right your brain is ever changing and children have more neuroplasticity than adults do that's why trauma is so much harder in children than it is in adults, right? But um, when you have a trauma and in PTSD forms, what what tends to happen is your your neural pathways, your connections in your brain have have they're kind of maladaptive. So let's say that I'm, I'm I have my phone in my hand. Let's say that somebody threw a cell phone and hit me in the head. Okay, and I got this big head head injury, and then every time I see a cell phone, it makes me cringe right? The, my brain is associating all cell phones are bad. I'm kind of making a silly example. All cell phones are bad. And when I see a cell phone, it causes PTSD, meaning my sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight, um, gets really activated. That's when the heart rate goes up. People tend to dissociate, not know where they are. Um, a lot of anxiety, shaking. So for me, that started happening on trails, um, just on any time there was unsteady footing. Um, so with initially with TAT, um, I got over that. Um, 
But I learned very quickly, I was like, let's just take this fear away. And I remember the practitioner saying to me, Meg, I can't remove fear from your body. You need fear as a human being. You need fear to let you know when you're safe and unsafe. You just have to learn how to feel it. Easier said than done. Um, EMDR, um, um, eye movement desensitization and reprogramming is another neurological way to reprogram your brain. Um, anytime I was in an MRI machine, I had to be sedated because you know how an MRI sounds like, you know, it makes those really loud, loud sounds. If I heard an MRI machine, whether I was in it or if I was, you know, as a practitioner, you know, with a patient that was, that was getting one or sitting outside, um, that sound would send me into PTSD. Um, now talk therapy on trauma um, and on PTSD doesn't always work because what happens is if I repeatedly talked about the things that were causing the PTSD, it just sends me right back into PTSD. I needed neurological reprogramming. Um, and if anybody listening to this needs more information about these modalities, if anybody reaches out to me, I'm happy to send it over. I just don't want to get too nerdy on this podcast and, you know, explain <laughs> explain, you know, too much, you know, too much so that I'm boring people. But I had to look at alternative therapies um, to help me get through the PTSD. Um, I've had two MRIs in the last year um, that I have been able to do unsedated and I was totally fine. Um, I'm not claustrophobic, never have been, but just the sound would literally, it literally felt like I was dying. That's the only way I can explain it. The sound of an MRI machine made me feel like I was dying. So fortunately that trigger was remo removed. Um, and so where I am today, um, I don't know. I, I'm aware of my limitations. I'm still pushing them. However, I think I, I said that my identity was wrapped in how far I could push myself um, and how much, um, how successful I could be. Like, it wasn't about me winning a race. I mean, sure, I wanted to, right? Um, but it was more about me being competitive against me. And if I did 100 miles, well, let's do 150. Well, if you do 100, let's do 200. You know, if you're doing, you did a race with, a thousand feet of elevation, why not do 10,000? There, it was just never enough. Okay. Today, I still want to do those things. I'd be lying if I said I didn't. I love adventure. I love this stuff. But my identity is wrapped up today in who I am. And the person I am today is a person that's been through extreme trauma, um, a lot of surgeries, a lot of medical procedures. But, um, it's given me the ability as a therapist and as a paramedic to to help other people by by sharing that vulnerability. And I think that's, again, part of the purpose of this podcast is people that have gone through injury, that have had setbacks. Um, sometimes you do have to stop. Sometimes you will. It will change you for the rest of your life. Other times there's a way to push through it. Um, what the answer is, I don't know. Um, but I'm not a person who gives up, you know, and I don't, if, you know, if I had stayed, if I had stayed, you know, in that place and listened to that doctor who told me I would never walk again, that's, it's not about not walking again, right? That wasn't the fear. It was just, a really big fear of stagnation, of never being able to grow, of never being able to change, right? And I remember laying in the hospital bed, having to really think, what's my life going to be like if I can't walk? What am I going to do? What am I going to be like as a person? And that, and I've explored that a lot over the past few years. Um, I want to continue to be able to share this experience to help people, but I also need this experience to constantly push me to be a better person and not close off to all those hard things. Um, and again, not hard physically, hard emotionally and 
just things that make me uncomfortable, like doing this podcast. Because <laughs> um, it's it's super vulnerable because now my pain and everything I don't show on a daily basis is out for other people to see. But the flip side is, Sean, what if one person hears this podcast and says, well, holy shit, like I broke my leg skiing and I'm afraid to ski again. You know, then they're not alone. Right. Doesn't mean they have to ski again. Doesn't mean they don't have to ski again. But it can just be so isolating when you because it feels like you're the only one who's ever gone through this. So today. Are you happy with who you are? As a person, as an athlete, are you grateful about where you are? And. Have you like really accepted where you are, not just in your head, but in your heart? Hmm. Um, yes to the first two. Um, I am happy. I like who I am. I really do. Um, I'm grateful to be alive every single day because I don't know how I survived that crash. The, um, I have no idea. I, I mean, um, I like who I am. I, I know I'm a strong person. Um, I also have an incredible ability to hold space for other people because it was done for me. And, you know, I've, I, I, you know, I had my master's and I was a therapist in my early twenties, but it took me years how to learn how to hold space. And what I mean by that is like, if somebody's sad or if somebody's feeling some tough stuff, a lot of times people say stupid things like, oh, you know, it's God's will. This is it. Or, you know, I understand. No, I don't believe that there's a God who decided that he wants to throw me off a bike. And no, if you haven't been through this type of trauma, no, you don't understand, right? Holding space is, and this is what I do with others on a daily basis. Sometimes I can personally relate, but other times it's just sitting there and being quiet and literally holding emotional space so that person can feel free to express what they need to express, right? Um, the third question, how did you phrase it? Um, Have you accepted it in your head and your heart? Oh. Jesus, no, I mean, where you are as an <laughs> athlete and as a person. Um, no, absolutely not. Um, I'm not there. Um, I'm still working on it. I, every day feels like a little bit of an evolution. Um, I think about a lot of the, like, think about our friend John Spelko, okay, or John Izzo, right? Those are our two of our friends from the Infinitist Society, and they're in their, like, you know, early to mid-70s, even, you know, my dad, my mom, like, those are people that I look at that are in, you know, like, later stages of their life, and still, they're super active, they're healthy, but the thing that I notice about them I remember John Spelko said this to me one time. I was like, well, how are you training for? Um, I think he was doing the DECA marathon. He's like, I don't. He's like, I just get up every day and I hike and I work at the house. And he lives like a physical lifestyle, right? And But the piece that really struck me was he goes, and when I'm tired, I just rest. What a freaking concept. When I'm tired, I rest. I still struggle with that one because resting, I have to remind myself that resting um, is not a sign of weakness. Resting is a sign of healing. You and I tell our athletes this all the time, like you need a recovery week, right? You need, you, you need those built into your training cycles because the, the strength happens in those recovery weeks when, you know, your muscles can heal. That's when you get stronger. If you're constantly going, you know, like balls to the wall, boom, 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 boom. All you're doing is breaking yourself down long term. The these athletes, the two Johns and your, or my parents, you know, older people that are active have somehow learned to work rest into their life where. I am a person who tends to I work too much. Um, I work a lot of hours. I do shift work. I push myself really hard. So I'm still trying to figure out what my, I don't know what my limits are. I don't know what my boundaries are, but on a daily basis, I'd say it's a work in progress because on a daily basis, I have to be in my body and go, oh, 
I feel good today. Like, yeah, my back, my back feels really good. I'm not having any hip pain. Um, my shoulder feels okay. Um, cool. I can, I can do this. Other days I wake up and, you know, my back is in a spasm and I have to say to myself, oof, I was supposed to lift weights this morning. I can't do that this morning. I need to do something else. Um, the piece that I'm still working on is I have this, my career is centered around helping other people. I have a, um, like this superhero complex, you know, that I just, I want to help people. Um, you know, if, if you, if something happens to you and you're in a crash on the side of the road, if I show up, um, that's a good thing. <laughs> I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing medically. I know what I'm doing emotionally to help you through this. But sometimes the toll that that trauma, others, other people's trauma takes on me is something I have to pay attention to. Um, I may see a half a dozen clients in a day and be fine, you know, um, you know, at my therapy practice. And then every once in a while, I'll process a really severe trauma with somebody um, and it just gets under my skin and it makes me really sad. Um so I have to come home and just be honest with my family. Like I had a really hard day and I just want to sit with you guys, have dinner, maybe watch a stupid TV show and go to bed. That's all I'm capable of. I don't feel the need to. I think I was using physical, like pushing myself physically and pushing myself mentally and emotionally um, to cover up fatigue to cover up what I felt was faults or weaknesses inside of me where today I just go I'm tired maybe I need to sleep more than somebody else today but it is what it is and it doesn't mean I'm any less of a human being that's that's progress but I still have to think about it I'm still in therapy um and I'm working on it so this is really probably the I think the the last question or thought I have about this, and you're free to after that ask or go anywhere you want with it. But um, how has this changed your coaching practice and the way you hmm. help others? And I mean, we in this in this podcast we've talked about how it interacts with your life and stuff like that, but what we do has this endurance now is, is athlete coaching, right? And so how has that affected that practice? Super good question. And I don't know that I really thought about that or considered it. Um, I think that, okay, so let's say I was coaching you and, um, I can see that you're overtraining. Whatever I'm, whatever I'm prescribing for you is is too much, and that happens sometimes as coaches. We just gotta, you know, see what athletes can do and what they can't do. Before all this, I would have said, okay, you know, let's take a recovery week, let's step back, let's chill out. Um, you know, I would change your, I would change your training program, um, and okay, move on. Maybe I would have left it at that. Okay, today. When I see somebody overtraining, undereating, overeating, engaging in addictions, um, and it goes back to I think what John Harris was talking about in the in the podcast that he was on, those addictions or those things that I see people pushing too hard on, especially, especially when I see people shutting others out. I'm, I'm more likely to, to bring it up. Okay. If I notice you're chronically overtraining instead of just stopping you as I would have years ago, I'm like, well, what's happening here? Why are, why are you overtraining? Um, what's happening in your home? Are you, do you have support? What's going on? Why do you feel the need to come to hurt yourself on a regular basis? I wouldn't ask those questions that directly. Right. Um, when I have athletes that that really um, that are working with me, but that keep me at an emotional arm's distance, um, I I move myself closer to those people. 
right? Because I know there's something going on and it's very hard for them to ask for help. Okay. Um, I pay attention to, and when I say addictions, I don't mean like, you know, somebody's killing themselves with meth type thing, but whether we're talking, you know, alcohol, drugs, overworking, um, whatever it is, I want to help them figure out what's going on, right? Like, oh, this addiction's here and it's not working for me. How can we use physical movement? How can we use the outdoors? How can we move? How can we use rather getting uncomfortable not to cover up those symptoms, not to cover up whatever you're feeling, but use physical movement to allow us to be a more vulnerable, vulnerable human being. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, do you think, so there's, I know there's a recent study that was saying that uh, ultra athletes tend to have higher rates of exercise addiction. And I know we've discussed this. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of ultra athletes come from a physical dependency addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if, you know, and it'd be, and I know you're like, oh, well, like, you're just trading one addiction. And I know you're very anti that statement. However, mm-hmm. I think that statement is not necessarily super off base. Um, I, I think, think it depends. And I think what I was going to say is, I think. Yeah that right like whether it's it's off base or not off base the the difference in outcome in most cases is right like if i'm freaking drinking it's it's a bad outcome if i'm mm. overtraining the outcome for the most part is less detrimental to life, to society, to my family, to anything else. I mean, sometimes, mm-hmm. sometimes if it becomes that, it can be detrimental in all those aspects. I think it's less likely, um, though you'll see athletes that that have, you know, that carry boats all day long and have <laughs> a hard time with a lot of other things because of such. Yeah. Um, who's going to carry the boat, son? And, we, and we've <laughs> talked about, you know, life balance and how sometimes it's about prioritizing and time prioritizing. And um, but don't, it's such a fine line, right? And sometimes we can see it as coaches, sometimes we can't. But is like with you, for example, all that you did this summer. Um, all the races that, you know, you're, you're 200 miles, um, over 200 miles, um, Western States, um, Jigger Johnson, you did a hell of a lot, right? However, at no time, at no point would I have looked at you in, in, I don't think it's an addiction. I think it's something that you like to do. And I think it's something that allows you to be a healthier human being. I have never seen you cross the line. I mean, sure. Did you hurt your ankles? Did your body was, you know, was your body messed up? Yeah. But I think it makes you um, a better coach, probably makes you a better husband, probably makes you a better dad because it allows you to push yourself and it allows you to reach those limits that you didn't think you could do. Right. Um, And I hope that, well, no, I know for me, I know for me that that line, that super fine line in the sand of when a person's crossed into this isn't good for you anymore can happen if somebody's doing 100 miles, um, a 5K, if they're doing CrossFit. It, it doesn't matter the the volume. It's the mental and emotional component of it. And I think it's made me more able to see when a person has crossed that line. And I hope that my I'm going to use this word because I mean it, that my suffering, and I genuinely mean suffering because this is suffering, um, my suffering has enabled you and Sam to to better view when somebody when somebody might have crossed the line. Um, and 
And then the question is, you know, how do we help that person if they want help or they may not want help. They may just want to do what they want to do. And that's cool. They're not ready to to change. I wasn't ready to change. The only reason I changed is because I went over my handlebars on my bike. Right. If that didn't happen, I would still most likely be engaging in the exact same behavior. Right. Um, This right now is much harder. This is harder than me running for 72 hours straight. Yeah, 100%. I would say accepting who you are by trying to mold yourself into who you perceive you should be probably is harder. Mm -hmm. And it's also, it's very hard for me. When I have people that I love, not not so much clients or patients, when when people that I love and care about are struggling, that aren't asking for help, that are still in their addictions or maybe are stuck in their depression or anxiety, it's very hard for me to to watch somebody suffer. Maybe before this accident, I would have forced myself on them despite their wishes. Now. I have the idea that you need to suffer until you, until you've had enough. You've had enough. When you're ready to ask for help, you will ask for help. If you're not ready to receive help, if I force that help on you, it's a waste of my time and your time. Um, and you gotta wanna. I, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that uh, I, I really, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think seeing me and hearing me go through this because you you came to Zendurance now the reason you're here is because when I was in my hospital bed I had a number I was actually doing this full time um I had dozens of athletes and um I couldn't handle it I couldn't be writing schedules I couldn't be doing this so I brought you on um I brought you on because really this <laughs> initially just I needed help Right. I needed help and I wanted the business to continue despite the fact that I was going through this. Um, so so that was a good thing. <laughs> I mean, really, if that crash hadn't happened, I don't think you and I would be sitting here today. Um, and I do hope that I really do hope that it helps you and Sam be better coaches. And I also hope that anybody listening to this podcast that has been genuinely suffering, and I say that if you haven't heard the prior episode, Sean and I have this ongoing argument. One of how many ongoing arguments do we have? We have a lot of them. Um, <laughs> but Bill one Lush of the ongoing. What's that? The Lush songs suck. <laughs> I sent you, did you see the Caillou clip I sent you? You didn't comment on that. Sean loves Caillou. <laughs> so, but one of the, <laughs> one of the ongoing arguments that we have is about suffering and it's kidding. Like, I, I mean, we're half, we're half kidding, you know, half serious, half kidding, whatever. But, but this is genuine suffering. And I want people to know that if they're suffering, it isn't the end. Like it isn't the end. You, you just have to survive. And, you know, whether somebody is sexually assaulted, whether you have a family member that's been murdered, um, whether you've been through a war, um, no matter what has happened, um, there is somebody out there that can hold space for you. And the medium that you use, whether it's therapy, whether it's running, um, whether it's meditation, whether it's yoga, whether you go on medications, whether you have to have surgeries, there's things that can support you. And this is the bitch of it. The the healing is in this is in the journey, right? And that's I sound like the inside of a tea bag, right? You know, those little things, those little things. Live, you know, laugh, healing. Love, Megan. Oh, Jesus criminy Christ. Um <laughs> that's what we should title this episode, Live, Laugh, Love. <laughs> but the the healing the the healing is is in the suffering and what we decide to do with it because if you like let's take your jigger johnson dnf that we talked about in the last podcast um could you have pushed through and finished that race absolutely but you made a decision that it was not beneficial for you to finish that race emotionally or physically for all the reasons we talked about and 
that is that's the line that I want to encourage people to be able to walk in life, to know that, yeah, sure, you may have had this plan to do this race, but sometimes it just sometimes it just needs to change. Um, you don't always have to be right. Sometimes you're going to be wrong. And, you know, sometimes you're going to have multiple surgeries and, you know, I don't even know. I've probably had, you know, 50 plus procedures on my body, you know, o- over the course of these years. Um, but I'm still here. There's no, I didn't lose value as a human being to you, to Sam, to anybody else that I know. The only person that I lost value to for a while was me. I'm going to be worthless if I can't run. I'm going to be worthless if I'm not able to finish, you know, top three. I'm going to be worthless if I'm not doing a hundred mile race. None of that's true, but I had to learn it. I didn't know it. I had to learn it. I'd say you're probably still battle with that a little bit, don't you? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, do I, I always want to do more, but I, you know, it's like that Johnny Cash thing we've talked about so much. I'm walking the line of what I can do. Um, walk the line. And if I continue to walk the line, who knows where I'll be? I mean, it, I, I ran a marathon this summer for crying out loud, a trail marathon like that. I didn't think I'd be able to do that. I really had no idea. Um, but I did it. And, and am I a greater person? Did I reach enlightenment? No. But it was really cool to know that I did it. There was no suffering in that. It was, I mean, it wasn't even, I got to be honest, it wasn't even really that uncomfortable. Like my feet, I had some blisters and stuff, but it felt really great to be at a race again. I do love the Endurance Society. I enjoy my friends. I enjoy the community. Um, I enjoy the course. I love being out in the woods. Um, And it was a great experience. And I think when I push myself, you know, if I'm surfing, if I'm doing yoga, if I'm on my bike, um, I want to push myself, but I want to keep it healthy. Oh, you know what we should talk about? And I think this might have been the impetus to... um, to us doing this podcast was I crashed my bike about a month ago. <laughs> um, so I was on my gravel bike. I think we talked about this a little bit, but not much. Um, and because of all the rain we'd had all summer, I was probably 10 miles into a ride and the trail was just gone. <laughs> the trail didn't exist. It was like this river into this abyss. <laughs> so it sucked. So I had to get off my bike and no big deal. And I just kind of put my bike over my shoulder, walked along the edge. Um, and I was getting eaten alive by bugs. And I was like, I got to get out of here because this sucks. This was not fun. Um, even if I was on my mountain bike, it would have been really crappy. And so I got back on my bike and again, the trail broke down. I tried to ride up to the right. Um, so I was probably, I probably fell from maybe like a 45 degree angle and I fell all the way over to my left side and landed on, um, landed on a bunch of rocks. Um, it hurt really, really, really bad. And the PTSD that I talked about that I haven't experienced in a long time came back. Right. And so I'm sitting there and nobody was there. So if, if, if somebody's with me when I fall, my first inclination is to jump back up. Like, I'm fine, I'm fine, everything's good. But nobody was there. So I kind of would have liked to just wallow in my self-pity for a minute. But the bugs were so bad that I thought the mosquitoes were going to carry me away. So um, so I got up and my knee hurt, my hip hurt, my shoulder hurt. Um, I really had a very hard crash. And I had to ride another 15 miles to get um back to civilization, so to speak. And what I've been working on in therapy is, well, okay, if Sean, if you crashed, how would I talk to you? If one of my kids crashed their bike, how would I talk to them? Because the way that I talk to my children or you or even a client or a patient on the side of the road is completely different. I would never talk to you the way I talk to myself. Okay. So I was like, I'm okay. I got to get out of here. 
um, let's just get back on the bike. I know it hurts, but it's not an option to stay here. So I rode my bike out. It hurt really bad. Um, I did get x-rays um, afterwards. Um, nothing was broken, but my left knee is still really sore. Um, when I got home, as soon as I was safe, um, you know, I got back into my house. I was getting ready to get cleaned up. Um, I went into PTSD. And fortunately, my husband was here. And I said to him, I know what's happening. My nervous system is out of control. Um, I'm in PTSD. I said, I, I, and I was shaking that same, you know, like shaking. Um, I was dizzy. I had to sit down, but the thing about PTSD and for anybody who's experienced it and maybe not known what it was, I knew that I was in my bathroom just ready. I just wanted to get cleaned up, get my clothes off, get in the shower, move on. But my brain was stuck. It to, in 2016, and I was on the side of the road. It brought me right back there after all this fucking work that I've done. And um, and so I don't know how long I was stuck in that, maybe 15 minutes or so. Um, and a trick, if you, if anybody ever finds themselves in a PTSD, whatever, and needs to get out of it, cold water is a great way to activate your parasympathetic nervous system. That's the side of your nervous system. Like it's called feed and breed, but it helps you calm down. It's going to help you sleep. Um, I got into an ice bath <laughs> and, um, and I sat there for a minute. It, I was like covered in mud. I have like cuts and blood. It was ridiculous. Um, but what it did was my, it activates your vagus nerve, which sort of simplistically trips your parasympathetic nervous system and it allows your body to calm down. So I did that um, and brought myself back. Um, so cold water is really great, you know, if anybody's if anybody's ever really struggling with this. But I knew exactly what was happening this time. And I'm like, I know I'm not on the side of the road in a bike crash. Um, but that's where my brain saw me, even though I knew I was standing in my bathroom, you know, with my husband. So, um, so I've, you know, subsequently healed from the crash. I got my bike fixed. Everything's okay. But it was really interesting to experience that, you know, so many years later, because I would have told you, oh yeah, I'm fine. I don't have any PTSD anymore. Everything's okay. Um, yeah, it can still come up. You know, there's always, <laughs> always opportunities for growth <laughs> or whatever. But, um, the black love. Oh, Jesus. Okay. <laughs> One of the things that um, I was told, and I pass on to other people, is when something bad happens to you, just keep telling the story. Like, if you keep telling the story, you're going to find, and like, you're going to find that it's easier each time you tell it. So, so I crashed my bike. Um, I had to call out of work. I was supposed to be a paramedic that night. There was no way um, I could do that because um, I had to take some pain medication. So I called out of work. That night, I was at work the next night, and I walk in, and my partner comes up to me, and she goes, can I give you a hug? This is not normal fire department talk. Um, I went, e -e -e yeah, why? She goes, I heard what happened to you on your bike, and I'm so glad you're okay. And I was like, wow. Okay, so she hugged me and said, I'm so glad you're okay. I mean, and I was kind of limping and a little banged up, but I, I really was okay. And another person walks in. Oh, my God, Megan, you're OK. What happened? I had to tell this stupid story that I just and it's not stupid. I had to tell this story about crashing my bike that I just told you probably over a dozen times. Like, I'm really OK. It's all right. It, you know, I, I did have x-rays. And, and every single time I told the story, it. I think it was a bit of that. It like chips away at that PTSD response, like. I'm safe. It's okay. It's like those, the, the neurological pathways in your brain reforming. I'm safe. I don't have to not talk about it. I don't have to hold it in. I don't have to pretend I'm okay. Um, you know, I told everybody at work, I, I really can't kneel. We kneel a lot as paramedics. Um, and I carry heavy equipment. So I said, Hey, you know, I'm not going to kneel today. Um, and if you could carry, like if we have to carry the oxygen tank or something like that, um, you know, if we have to carry something, if you could do it and they're like, yeah, fine. You know, um, so having that crash about a month ago was really eye-opening as to the progress that I've made and also the areas that still exist um, that I still need to work on. So. All right. 
And here we are today. And now. Here we are today. You made me do homework for this episode, which I Which is did. a big deal. Let's say this is a big deal. <laughs> did you do your homework? Do we have a song to go out with? Yes, we do. We do. And this is, um, I believe this is going to be a two-part episode. So this will be the end of the, the second episode. Okay. There, um, Grace Potter and the Nocturnals. Um, have you heard of them? Okay, so Grace Potter was with the Nocturnals. Now she's um, solo and she's just Grace Potter. However, um, there's a little song called um, Tiny Light. Okay, and there's a story about this. When I was doing my run in the woods um, um, on the way home before my bike ride, the very last song that I heard was this song, Tiny Light by Grace Potter and the Nocturnals. Um, great song. Absolutely great song. And she is great in concert. She's gorgeous. She can control a crowd. She's just, she can sing. It's, she can belt out notes that uh, most humans can't. Love this song. So this was the last song I heard before I crashed. Completely forgotten about it. And then I want to say it was like, I don't know, six months to a year later, the song came on like randomly. And I, it took my breath away. And I was like, holy shit, this was the song. This was the song I heard before I crashed. So whenever I hear this song, it's a really cool song. I like it, but it, it genuinely takes me back and makes me skip a little bit of a breath because um, it's forever. It just, it, it, musically imprinted on me. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but yeah, it, uh, it is just, it's just kind of solidified as the song I heard before everything changed. Right on. Well, thank you for sharing. Thanks for telling your story and, uh, hope you have a great fucking day. <laughs> Live, laugh, love. Live, laugh, love. <laughs>
Hey gang, we have a favor to ask of you. If you would go to the app that you use to listen to our podcast, please follow and subscribe to our show. This really helps us. And it also really helps you because you will never miss an episode. While you're there, if you could also leave us a five-star rating and a great review, these type of things are super helpful for us because they help our ratings. Last but not least, share this with a friend. There's somebody out there who hasn't heard this and I'm sure would appreciate the share. Thanks, everybody.